right, folks, welcome to another edition of John Solomon Reports. This is Daniel Payne. I'm a reporter with Just the News. As you might have already guessed, John Solomon is not here today. He's taking a little vacation and he's left me in charge. We'll know by the end of the week whether or not that was a wise decision on his part. But in the meantime, I'm glad to be here and I hope you all enjoy a little change up of hosts for a few days. Uh, there's obviously a lot of news to cover these days, uh, but of course, uh, seemingly overshadowing everything is the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which has been ongoing in the U.S. for nearly a year at this point. We're almost uh, at a year since uh, the first confirmed case uh, in the United States. Uh, that's pretty much been in the headlines since January. Uh, COVID cases, COVID deaths, the spread of the virus, the lockdowns, the school closures. Uh, we're all, uh, unfortunately, very familiar with it at this point. Uh, later this week, we're, we're actually going to be focusing on a specific topic related to COVID-19, and that's the pandemic's effect on children, uh, specifically the effects that lockdowns are having on kids. But today I thought we'd do just a brief, uh, broad overview of the pandemic here in the U.S. Of course, it is a, a global phenomenon, but, uh, but certainly we are focused, uh, focused on it most, uh, particularly here in the U.S., um, I, I want to look at a few pandemic stories you, you may have missed because they're not generally covered very heavily in the media. Uh, and as I said, this has been pretty much the dominant media story uh, 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 contending with certainly the presidential election of the past year. Uh, but, but there are a number of, I think, really important stories that the media uh, does miss. They don't cover as thoroughly as they should. And of course, we uh, try and bring you the, um, the best coverage we can of everything at, um, at Just the News, and we have covered a lot of these issues. Um, and I want to add that we're, we're going to have a guest on later. His name is Daniel Halpern. He's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and he was previously at Harvard. Uh, and he'll have some expert insight into the pandemic that I think you'll all find very valuable. It's a, it's a very good interview, so I want you to stick around for that. But um, before that, I'd, uh, I'd like to focus on, um, on two major stories uh, out of the pandemic uh, right now, and I think uh, some angles of them that you might not be aware of. The first is the, the pandemic in Europe. Now, uh, if you've been following this, you know that uh, cases in Europe uh, skyrocketed over the past several weeks or months. Um, you know, cases uh, uh, confirmed positive tests were were pretty low over the summer in most cases. Um, for most countries in Europe, uh, Western Europe, they uh, they they were pretty low, and there were a lot of folks in the U.S. who were pointing to. Uh, uh, the success that Europe had had in mitigating the virus. They said the lockdowns and uh, a lot of testing and uh, social distancing policies and mask policies had, had really worked in suppressing the virus there. Um, and it, it seemed to have worked for, for uh, quite a while. Uh, there was really, uh, uh, they seemed to be doing a lot better than uh, significant parts of the rest of the world, including a number of U.S. states. But uh, over the past few weeks or past month or two, the, the, the rate of positive cases there just exploded uh, in a way that's that's kind of hard to comprehend. It's it's just the rate of cases there uh, adjusted for population uh, was just was very very high, and uh, that received a lot of media coverage at the time because uh, you know it was concerning. Why why were cases surging again? Why was the virus coming back? It seemed like they'd beaten it back. What seems to have happened there uh, is uh, uh, cases seem to have peaked. Uh, now of course you you want to take all that with a grain of salt and 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 make those claims very cautiously because. 
uh, you never know what's going to happen the next day or next week. But uh, certainly there has been um, a sustained decline in daily new cases for, for uh, a couple weeks now, maybe even longer than that, in France, Italy, Germany, uh, the United Kingdom, Spain. Uh, these are all places where the virus appeared to be spiraling out of control. And uh, the cases that they were confirming every day uh, seem to have peaked uh, yeah, a number of weeks ago. So th that's something you may not have, uh, have been um, uh, uh, too aware of because uh, certainly the rise of cases there was pretty heavily covered, as was the new wave of lockdowns and restrictions that a lot of governments there imposed in the wake of those cases. But, uh, but it seems like uh, they're on the downward swing of things. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not really clear uh, uh, what is the cause of that? Were the lockdowns the cause of that? Uh, did people change their behavior? Uh, did they close down uh, restaurants? Um, and you know, it's it's that of course will will be answered uh, over the course of time. But uh, it is certainly something to note that this uh, what appeared to be a very troubling and concerning uh, situation in much of Western Europe uh, uh, seems to be. Uh, on the downward side of things. So that's that's very encouraging. Um, you know, there, there's also very early and very tentative signs that, uh, that cases uh, nationwide across the U.S. Uh, may be on a downward trend as well. Certainly a lot of the Midwestern states that were responsible for the recent surge uh, appear to have hit their peak a while ago and are trending downward. Uh, probably about the last five or six days, we've seen what appears to be a, a slight downward trend in um, in cases uh, nationwide around the U.S. And again, uh, uh, you have to be very cautious proceeding with that because uh, it can just uh, turn on a dime sometimes and you, you never know if uh, something else is going to spike or if more cases are going to go up. But uh, those are two trends that are, that are cautiously encouraging that, uh, that haven't got a whole lot of attention in the media that, uh, that I think people at least should be made aware of. Uh, uh, I think we should be aware every step of the way of, uh, of what's going on in the pandemic and what's uh, uh, the, the, the course of the, the virus uh, throughout the world. Um, you know, uh, another really critical, important part of this pandemic uh, that, that's directly related to the number of cases that we've seen uh, throughout the country and throughout the world is the way in which those cases are tested. Now, I want to say we, we actually have a pretty uh, uh, important report on this coming out at Just the News uh, later this week. I believe it is tomorrow, so you want to keep an eye out for that. But right now, I can uh, I just want to draw folks' attention to the fact that um, um, the cases are, are – are, are an issue that uh, uh, I think, uh, excuse me, uh, tests are an issue that I think uh, hasn't received the, the, the thorough kind of coverage that, uh, that it should have in the media uh, up to this time. Uh, you know, many, if I believe it's a majority of cases uh, in uh, the U.S. and maybe the world are tested by what's known as a polymerase chain reaction test. It's a PCR test. You've probably seen that in the news. These tests identify pathogens by taking a medical sample and subjecting it to amplified cycles. Uh, what happens is if a, if a bit of virus is present, the PCR test will amplify it to the point to the point that the device can identify it and, and categorize it as COVID or something else. <clears throat> it, uh, it sounds pretty simple, but the, the crux of the issue is if a test has to go through a lot of amplification cycles to detect the virus, uh, what that suggests is that the original viral sample was fairly small. 
Um, a number of prominent virologists have pointed out that if a test goes through 35, 36, 38 amplification cycles uh, before it finds a positive result, then what it's doing is taking a very, very small sample of virus and magnifying it to the point that it can declare it a positive sample. Uh, so what that means is that a lot of people who get positive test results uh, may actually not be infectious or, or even actively infected as, as it's kind of known uh, uh, in medical and epidemiological circles. Uh, the test may in fact just be picking up uh, dead fragments of the disease or the virus uh, at that point. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're, you're familiar with his work on COVID-19, I'm sure. He's been in the news for months and months. He was uh, heavily involved with the White House at the outset of the pandemic. He said in July that in such cases, the tests are actually just picking up dead nucleotides rather than actual live virus. Now, in most cases, when a patient receives his positive test results, he doesn't receive the cycle threshold number either. Uh, that's something that if you, God forbid, get a positive COVID test, you might consider asking for the cycle threshold if your healthcare provider has it. Uh, if nothing else, it's another piece of personal medical information you can have. But overall, what we've seen, and, and we have a story coming about this at Just the News, like I said, is we've seen that this critical piece of information is missing from a lot of the COVID-19 debate, this this metric by which uh, a positive COVID test can be assessed. It, it, it really uh, it doesn't feature prominently in uh, state medical reports, uh, in, in much of the medical discussions surrounding this. You're, you're just not seeing that brought up a lot. Um, and it really does call into question what the rise and fall of cases really means. Uh, when we see them go up or down in Europe, in the U.S., in individual states, when we see these huge numbers denoting uh, positive tests, uh, what does that really signify? Uh, what do the peaks and valleys of COVID-19 really mean in relation to these tests and this number called the cycle threshold? Um, this is something people should know. Uh, uh, it, it is something people should at least be aware of. Um, and, you know, Just the News, we're working hard to bring you this and other critical data points of the pandemic so you can have the fullest picture of what's going on. So please stay tuned. I think we're going to have some good coverage on that. All right, folks, we'll be back in just a bit to discuss the last year or so of the pandemic uh, with UNC professor Daniel Halpern, uh, who I'm sure you're going to love to hear from. Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome back to John Solomon Reports. I'm your guest host this week, uh, Daniel Payne. I'm a reporter with Just the News. Uh, and right now on the line, we have Daniel Halperin. He's a professor uh, in the Department of Health Behavior, 
the Gilling School of Global Public Health at UNC. Uh, and one of his most recent publications is Facing COVID Without Panic, 12 Common Myths and 12 Lesser Known Facts About the Pandemic, Clearly Explained by an Epidemiologist. So we certainly can see he knows his stuff. Professor, it's good to have you here with us. Likewise. Thank you. Um, so earlier in the year, uh, in, a, in a, um, a paper you wrote, uh, you uh, advanced a kind of cautious sort of uh, – uh, herd immunity approach that might be preferable to the uh, lockdowns and shutdowns that we saw at the start of the year and that we are continuing to see in some parts of the country and throughout the world. Um, do you still believe that there there might be an alternative approach to, to dealing with the COVID pandemic, that, uh, that something resembling herd immunity might be possible? And, and if so, what evidence have you seen to, to sort of bolster that belief over the past several months? Right. Wow, start off with an easy question, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that was in a paper that was published in a peer-reviewed public health journal in May. And I mentioned the issue in the book. Um, I think in both instances, if I recall correctly, I referred to it as a possibly least terrible um, option. That right. was the wording I used, least terrible. So I obviously, I don't think that it's a wonderful, perfect, um, strategy by any means. Um, but I look, I think there's been a lot of polarization around COVID-19 as of course there's a lot of polarization, a lot, a lot of things these days. Um, you know, always wear a mask all the time. Don't bother wearing a mask. Um, herd immunity is, is a great way to deal with this. Uh, herd immunity is absolutely ridiculous. We shouldn't even be talking about it. I try in many ways to steer a path where I think the evidence suggests it goes and I think that it's easy to just dismiss something like herd immunity as being wacko or outside the realm of consideration but um, look as scientists or I think maybe more not only scientists but certainly as a scientist I think I need to look at any possible way out of this or any possible approach that could be useful and um, I did not sign the recent so-called Great Barrington Proclamation. I was asked to sign it, and I largely agreed with it in many ways, but I couldn't sign on because I think there's still some problems. I think it was a little too blithe the way they said, you know, we just need to let everybody carry on and protect those that are vulnerable. I actually very much believe that and, and say that in my book, but it, but it's a little easier said than done. Right. Um, and so... You know, there's the criticism has been made, rightfully to some extent, that if we just did that in a pure kind of way, that still a lot of people would end up getting infected and vulnerable people would end up dying. And I take that point, but look, I, I, it's a very complicated issue. But the way I tend to see this now, which probably will sound a little outside the box, probably to some listeners, is that we are essentially dealing with, I think, when historians look back at this, they will say, and I don't know if they'll be looking back 100 years from now or even much, much sooner than that, but they'll look back at this and say, what this whole episode, let's call it, has been essentially about from a biological point of view, from a planetary point of view. What, we've, what we're really talking about is that until the beginning of this year, there were four t strains of coronavirus that have been 
circulating among humanity for many years. And fortunately, although they're very transmittable, and every year, literally billions of people get them because they're they're one of the main reasons that people get the common cold, right. they rarely kill people. And I say toward the end of the book, I propose the hypothesis, and I cite some evidence for this, that those other coronaviruses very likely made their appearance in a similar way as this one. In other words, in fact, there was a very interesting book review in the New York Times a few weeks ago by a biologist writing about COVID, and he presents compelling evidence that the so-called Russian flu of 1890, in other words, about 30 years prior to the Spanish flu, 130 years ago, the so-called Russian flu that killed maybe a million people, um, he, pre he presents evidence that it wasn't probably a flu at all, that it was probably one of the four common coronaviruses now. Right. Um, and so that coronavirus, which today a lot of kids get as a kind of common cold and very rarely actually kills or hospitalizes anyone, and when it first made his entrance, it did so in a very deadly way. So this thing, which you know seems so horrible and is horrible, um, from a really long, long-term perspective, from if you sort of stepping away, big picture, long period of time perspective, it may be the case that in the future, and that could be as soon as a few years from now, or it could be longer than that, but at some point it's quite likely that this will end up being the fifth coronavirus, and it will be similar in the sense that every year many, many people will get it, mostly kids, but other people too, but that rarely people will die from it. In other words, we're in the middle of this very ugly and difficult period where we're sort of learning to develop immunity to this new organism. Um, but of course, that doesn't, that, that might be interesting from a scientific point of view, from a human point of view, that doesn't help if you're grandfather is in the hospital with this thing, right. you know, and potentially dying. So I don't want to minimize the fact that, you know, that, you know, when these things come, they're, they're quite brutal, but they have a positive and negative side to them. And the negative side is pretty obvious, but right. the positive side is that they're kind of like a massive vaccination, right? So the, the, the Spanish flu, which we all have heard about a hundred years ago was horrific and Thankfully, COVID-19 is nowhere near as deadly as the right. Spanish flu was. Right. Um, but it also, what it did was it sort of inoculated the human race, or huge parts of it, against that strain of the flu. So people have still died from that same strain in the 100 years since then, but far, vastly few people have died from it than did in those couple years that it ran amok. Right. So, you know, I understand the huge... I understand the thinking behind the immunity impulse, which is to say, look, we can't fight this. It's what well, the reason I compare it. The reason I compare it to the four strains that cause the common cold is because even though the impact right now of coronavirus 19 is much, obviously, vastly more terrible than the other coronaviruses, but from a prevention point of view, trying to prevent the spread of this coronaviruses would be similar if we'd been trying to prevent the spread of the common cold. If we decided for some reason that we wanted to prevent everyone from getting the common cold this year, that's a tall order. Right. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent the spread of something which is spread very similar in many ways 
and differently in other ways, but similar in many ways to the common cold. So I understand that impulse. Hey, look, we, it's a, let's forget it. We're not going to, we can't, you know, look at this country I'm in now, Spain. They've had mass mandates, universal mass mandates for many, many months. Right. They've done, you know, all kinds of things. And the cases have exploded, just as we're seeing in parts of the U.S. and so on. So the, the, this, the, the sense then is why keep fighting? Just let it go. Let young people that it's true i mean the vast vast majority of young healthy people will be fine in fact the majority will probably be asymptomatic won't even know they had it right um and let's do everything we can to try and protect those that are vulnerable but that's the hard part you know how do, it sounds great but how do you protect them and i have some ideas but it's not it's not as easy as it might as we would like it to be like that was probably a much longer answer than you wanted <laughs> no that was great it was uh, uh... I feel like I could uh, uh, listen to a lot more because it certainly is a, a, a just an incredibly pressing topic. Uh, uh, how do we get out of this? What's the path out of this? Um, and like you said, uh, uh, some people uh, really believe that the, the sort of uh, targeted or cautious herd immunity approach is, is, is the one. Of course, uh, the looming vaccine uh, that's set to be uh, uh, released in the general circulation is another. Um, real quick, what do you... What do you think that the the endpoint of this is going to be? Uh, you know, and, and you kind of alluded to it. I think uh, that that eventually this may sort of become uh, almost like a, a epidemiological background noise, like the common cold, uh, for want of a better term. But uh, I mean, do, do you think that? You think a vaccine is going to be the thing that uh, that finally puts the lid on this, or do you think that it's going to play just a, a small role, or, or, or what? Um, what do you think is ultimately the light at the end of the tunnel uh, uh, for just this entire uh, miserable experience? Right, right. Well, you know, I can't predict. I mean, I think a lot of us are, of course, hopeful and optimistic that the vaccine, vaccines (plural) will will help immensely and and they probably will it's it's going to be a little bit uh mushy and and complicated of course like most things tend to be it's not so clear cut for example who should get it i mean there's i think there's a fairly good consensus on who should get it first that that obviously people at highest risk as well as health health care providers and so on um you know probably frontline workers uh should should get it but the question is should eventually everybody get it should kids get it you know young people um that those are some i think some unanswered questions right because we don't know the long-term uh safety profile yet you know we've rushed this whole process through understandably and, and i think you know it's the right thing to do but but of course when you rush something through you don't have all the data and um so it should help a lot i mean it the whole point the same people many of the same people that say herd immunity is a terrible idea then say the vaccine is the solution well i mean in a way that's what a vaccine is it's a way of creating herd immunity through a vaccine so um but you know it should help just like the annual flu you know may it may end up being similar to the annual flu vaccine in the sense that it helps a lot but it's not perfect and maybe it has to be recalibrated in some years it'll do better than others or maybe it'll be a lot better than that i mean certainly these first findings look look very good but uh i don't know i'm i'm waiting to see like all of us yeah yeah we certainly are and we've been waiting for quite a while and we're hoping that it's right around the corner but uh i'm sure that uh i'm sure we'll know eventually and uh and i'm sure you'll have uh some input on how to uh how to assess and uh and sort of 
uh, figure out how to process everything that's happened over the last year and uh, and in the year to come. So, uh, Professor Halpern, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you're doing. I'm sure you're uh, you are uh, helping as much as anybody on this front. And uh, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on again sometime soon when uh, when times look a little brighter. My pleasure. All Take right. Care. Take care. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, folks, that's it for today. I thank you for joining me on this special edition of John Solomon Reports. I'll be joining you again tomorrow and Thursday as guest host, and I'm looking forward to digging into more news with you uh, for the rest of the week. Take care and be good. Be good.